This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hey everyone, and welcome to another week of O Ship. This week I'm joined by a new friend called Vivek Vajan. He's the co-founder, general partner, and CTO of Superset. Now, if you've never heard of Superset, they're a startup studio that actually focuses on founding and building data-driven software companies. So Vivek was the CTO of Salesforce Marketing Cloud, the co-founder of Crux, which was sold to Salesforce, worth noting was also a Chameleon Collective client at one point. Prior to that, he was the CTO of Wrapped, a media monetization software that was sold to Microsoft. He's even the co-author of Data Driven, harnessing data and AI to reinvent customer engagement, which was published in 2018. And I think that Vivek is one of those people that's just been sitting at the forefront of technology for a long time, which is why he's perfect to discuss what it means to build a business in a data and AI driven world, given that that is such an incredibly interesting and hot topic right now. And with that, here we go with another week. Oh, ship. Vivek, welcome to OSHIP. How are you? I'm great, Freddie. Thank you for having me on the show. Looking forward to uh, our conversation. My pleasure. I've been dying to pick your brain. I've been geeked out on so many AI conversations lately with friends and colleagues. And I keep thinking that, okay, I could pick a, a real wizard's brain soon, given how much you spend thinking about this kind of world. You know, I did my best to kind of give a, a fair intro for Superset. It'd be really helpful if you told our audience a little bit more about what you guys are doing. Yeah, of course. Before I get into what Superset is doing, I will tell you, Freddie, that expectations reduce joy. Any high expectations you may have about insights in the eye, temper them now. Uh, <laughs> well, I think it's hard to know anything. It's hard to know where it's going to go out there. But I think you got a good sense of, you know, the pulse of data-driven companies, so... I'm looking forward to geeking out on this subject with you. Yeah, me too. Me too. So just digging in, Superset is a startup studio that founds, funds, and builds data-driven software companies. My co-founder, Tom Chavez, and I, we've been working together for just over 23 years now. And we were together at Rap, then at Crux, and now at Superset. And along the way, we've built a couple of data-driven companies, and we developed some expertise in not just the product and technology aspects, but also how to take these companies to market, the go-to-market aspect of building these companies too. So we were very fortunate that we had a group of people at Crux slash Salesforce after the acquisition who were still eager to work together. And when Tom and I decided to do something new, we had this problem of plenty, if you will, where people were asking us, hey, when are we doing the next thing? Everybody had grown. You know, the directors were ready to become VPs and the VPs were ready to become co-founders. Right. And so we had this abundance of talent that uh, we had to work with. And so we, uh, and we had to be toying around with this idea of building and starting multiple companies because we're company builders at heart and we love entrepreneurship. So we decided to create the studio and literally we had four ideas that we were kind of sort of toying with and we split the number of people into four groups and launched four companies. That's how the That's studio awesome. was born. First of all, I think it's really cool that you've got a 
you know, kind of a partner in crime that you've worked with for so long that it's like your work soulmate, so to speak. So I think it's cool that you guys were able to do that. I think it says a lot about you as a leader and as founder that you've got this kind of, you know, web of people that are like, I don't know where we're going, but let's all go someplace together. And I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, we're very lucky in that regard. Very, very lucky in that regard. So are there more than four now? Oh yeah, the 10 and an 11th one is a Bruin right now. Wow, very um, cool. And they're all at different stages. So the earlier ones, uh, some of them have gone on race series B. Some of them did big series A's. Some of them, the second cohort, if you will, did seed rounds and they've just done C plus rounds. And the others are just starting out. We have companies in all of the different, along the spectrum, so to speak. Very cool. What makes you love data-driven software? You know, beyond your background, like there's clearly a passion that's evident here, in my opinion. Yeah, I think the problems that stem from data-driven software are very interesting. If you look along the way, at Wrapped, when we were building supply chain optimization or pricing optimization software, we start off in the high-tech verticals. So companies like Sun, HP, Intel, Apple, et cetera, were our customers. And then we pivoted and adapted the technology for media. And so most of the large publishers were our customers. The volume and velocity of data that people talk about the four Vs of data, the amount of data we were processing in the late 90s, early arts, you compare that to today, it's night and day in terms of scale. And therefore, the technologies that you need to develop to solve the same problem have just exploded and have evolved over the last 20 years or so. So that keeps my job interesting. You know, even now when we were doing Crux, right? And now we were one of the earlier adopters of platforms like Hadoop and AWS. And now Hadoop is quite dead, but it's obsolete now. People have moved on to yeah. things like Spark and Ray and Dask and platforms yeah. like that. So this innovation is just keeps happening. And for us, application slash infrastructure slash services like company builders, the availability of this kind of technology to solve data-driven problems is just gets more and more exciting every day. Yeah. Sometimes when you, I think you talk to your average person and you start talking about the concept of data, I think that it can feel very technical. It can feel kind of impersonal. Is there a humanity or a beauty to data in your opinion as someone who you know, is clearly so passionate about it? Yes, absolutely. I think that Ultimately, what you are trying to do is get the data to speak to you, right? You are looking for patterns, you're looking for insights, you're looking for answers to questions that you might have. So your job, whether it's a data analyst or a data scientist or a software engineer who's building applications using data, your job is to give people the tools that they can use to get answers to these questions. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you are yourself a user, like as a, as a software engineer building distributed systems, you are looking at observability data. How are my services doing? What went wrong? Oh, the customer reported an issue. How do I go find out where exactly this issue came from? That's a data discovery, data analysis problem, because you're looking at logs that were produced by your application. And there could be gigabytes and petabytes of these logs. And you now have to go flunking, right? With whatever tools you have to get insights and get the data to speak to you, to give the answers to questions yeah. you have. When you start thinking about these insights and you talk about the size of some of these data sets that are out there now, 
one of the things that's really interesting when you're just self-reflecting on this kind of like the humanity of data, I think there's things that we think a personal answer is a one-to-one answer, in my opinion, or this feeling I have about myself or this situation or something that I'm behavior that I'm exhibiting. But actually there's something I think about when you look at really large subsets of data that bring out universal human truths. Like the consistency can tell a more, I'm not saying always, but can tell a more accurate, I think, perception of who we are, what anything is, when you really kind of abstract things out. And I think there's something really beautiful about that and really interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. And it's a technique that most analysts or scientists use as well. It's very hard to model a single individual's behavior. Yeah. Right. And so you think in terms of cohorts. And then you go backwards and forwards. You think in terms of cohorts, you get some insight, and then you apply that insight to the individual to give that individual a sense of uniqueness. You know, my Spotify playlist that Spotify recommends for me is different from yours, but yeah. I bet you that there are certain aspects of music that are common to us. Maybe yeah. the specific artists that we like are different, but hey, we might still like 70s rock and roll. You know? I'm more like a early '90s European polka scene. Is that not what oh, you're okay. into? No, that's not. But then we will have very different. Uh, Jared's algorithms. You're <laughs> such a cool background, and you've worked with some really big names in tech. Both, I think, merging through them as a startup owner and founders, but then you're having to operate in some pretty big businesses. To put it mildly, so I feel like now being knee deep in the startup studio is a really interesting flip for you. And I'm going to ask this question a couple of different ways from different angles, just forewarning you. What are some of the most important lessons that you've taken from some of the big companies that you've now been exposed to and that you try and help bring to some of these earlier startup founders to help them consider as they're birthing these companies? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. You know, one of the things that I've come to appreciate a lot, right, is the power of distribution. As technologists, we are very quick to get caught up in, oh, look, we're solving this cool problem using this really wonderful solution that we came up with. All of it is for naught if you can't figure out how to market it and sell it to your customers. And that's one thing we learned at Salesforce in spades. Like Salesforce has really nailed what we call the distribution problem, where starting from how do you discover customers for your solution to how do you create a plan and a whole program to guide them through this funnel, if you will, and then turn these prospects into customers. So the power of distribution is one thing that we've learned at big companies that I've learned at big companies like Salesforce. And those lessons we've taken to heart, like we start with the go-to-market aspect right from day zero mm -hmm. as we are starting and building these companies, starting with who's the customer? How are we going to sell to them? How do we find out what problems they care about? Forget the technology. Let's focus on the problem they're trying to solve and forget the how. Let's focus yeah. on the what. These are types of things. Sell, was it sell, sell the hole, not the drill kind of Correct. thinking. Yeah. Correct. The other thing that I learned at Salesforce is the power of people. Now we say at Superset, people, product, customers. Salesforce is a great company to work for, right? They do pay asymmetric attention to the people aspect. And mm. I benefited from that. So that's another learning that, that we took away in the startup studio. This kind of concept of starting with the customer, I think one of the problems when you deal with engineering-led founders as well, sometimes you can get really focused on the tech and you become a solution in search of a problem. You're like, man, this yep. is so cool. 
but like, does it solve a meaningful problem for people? Do you feel like you've had to course correct founders you've worked with over the years to kind of help them to see that big picture? No, not at Superset. And the reason for that, Freddie, is when we build companies, right? So we're a startup studio. We have a fund that we use to make seed investments in the studio, in the studio, but that's a secondary thing. But if you were a VC firm, VCs write investment memos, right? Mm -hmm. So within the partnership, they'll write a memo about, oh, I want to invest in company X and here are the parameters and here's a memo I'm going to write to convince the partnership of why it's good for us to invest in this company X. Mm -hmm. At Superset, we write solution memos. And Mm -hmm. the solution memo is actually an articulation of the customer, the Mm -hmm. pain point the customer is facing and how we might address that pain point through a solution that we will build. And then more importantly, what we do is we kind of lay out the roadmap for staging and sequencing. This is where the company is going to go. In the here and now, in stage yeah. one, we're going to do X. Well, it sounds like it's tone creating as well, which is really helpful. Yeah. So, and so yeah. you don't have to course script because you were in the trenches with them helping making sure they consider this through the learnings accumulated. Correct. And that the other benefit of that is, and we're seeing this right now with some companies, as they grow and go on to raise series A, series B, et cetera, right? We're on the board and we are advisors to them, et cetera, but they can reach out to us as operators as well, because we had been in the trenches with them earlier when we were building the company initially. So there's the trust that is built where they can kind of ask us to put on our builder or co-founder hats on mm-hmm. and work with them through whatever it is that they are going through a new product initiative, some strategic changes they want to make, how to acquire a new set of customers in another vertical, whatever the issue might be, we can engage with them as builders and not just board members slash investors as well. I love that. So I want to flip this question on its head for a second. So I think one of the things that's interesting when you can get in these bigger and bigger companies, all these tech startups, like these Microsoft example, obviously famously kind of started in a you know, garage type mentality. And then all of a sudden you're behemoth of a business. And I think sometimes it's possible for things to kind of get lost along the way. You know, even though they say, hey, we've got this entrepreneurial DNA and they want to feel that way, the bureaucracy and the hierarchy and the infrastructure and all that starts to get in the way of all that. Now that you've been back in the startup game, so to speak, and you reflect back on some of the things you saw, and obviously I'm not looking for you to be critical of some clearly amazing places to work. But do you think there's anything that, even if you want to count as generalization, some of the things that you feel like gets lost in the mix at the bigger companies? Yeah, a couple of things. One, there is not as much appetite to take a risk. So whether it's, you know, with a new product launch or a new set of features that you want to launch in an existing product, the risk appetite isn't the same at a big company. And perhaps that's understandable, right? The second thing is, you have to work really hard to make the case for a new product. And unless it's going to generate hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue very quickly, it doesn't meet the bar, so to speak, mm. right? That's why they acquire the early stage ones and roll them in, basically. Correct, correct. There's a lot of that kind of thinking that goes on in the companies like that. Now, on the outside, I look at it as, hey, that's opportunity for people like us to build companies and whatnot. The other thing that kind of gets in the way, and I experienced this myself to a large degree, is that the decision-making machine is operates very slowly. 
Mm. Right. And so even though you would have aligned on, okay, yep, we agree. This is what we need to do. Actually making it so on that decision takes a much longer time than you would have expected. And so those are like three things that I think are, are different or get in the way really of big companies trying to build innovative products themselves. Yeah. Now that you've kind of you know, been flipping back and forth between the two, do you think you enjoy the earlier part of the business building or do you like the, the leader stage scaling more just personally? Look, I think that I love the entire yeah. company building journey, right? I'm making and you pick between so, like two children right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I never thought that I was the kind of person who would relish these problems that come out when you are operating at scale. Number of customers, you know, as your, num as your number of customers grows, you know, you start to hear different types of things from different customers. You have issues across multiple customers. They all have different priorities and different roadmaps for success and whatnot. And then you need to innovate too, right? I was more like, okay, we have this problem. Let's go build some software to solve it and then move on to the next thing, right? I've realized that there's a lot of joy in the whole journey especially when you've been through it once or twice, like I have, right? You, you come to the other end and you're like, wow, we built something great and impactful. And we were very lucky at Crux that we had a lot of customers who came on board with us in the early, early stages who trusted us. Frankly, I don't know why, but I'm sure glad they did, right? And they were customers throughout and with their friends now. And it was that whole journey, you know, wouldn't have happened if I was just interested in one aspect and not the other. So I relish it on, Freddie. Nothing wrong with that. I'm an equal opportunity lover of great fun projects as well. So no judgment. So speaking of fun project, it's been obviously all over the really hot and heavy on the news cycle lately, obviously we're chatting about AI. I think it's impossible to start talking about AI or start talking about the you know, giant subsets of data that these AI tools are trained on. What do you think of it all? How much of it is hype? How much of it is real? You know, what excites you? Just give me your download. Yeah. The, the kind of stuff that we've been able to do with, with machine learning in the last five years or so, it's just amazing. It's funny we're having this conversation right now where it's been a few months since the launch of ChatGPT and the results that ChatGPT is throwing out in terms of giving us answers to questions and whatnot, just mind-blowing, right? It's writing essays and writing answers to questions posed in exams at MBA schools and whatnot and getting excellent grades for whatever it's worth. So the potential for it all is just mind-blowing, right? All the work that's going on in self-driving cars and all of that, it's amazing. Marketing and advertising has been the beneficiary for quite some time now, but I'm actually very excited to see the applications of machine learning and AI in industries that are not considered mainstream and sexy, like logistics and supply chain and healthcare even, although there are some very interesting applications in healthcare that have come out in the last five years or so. But look, the potential is awesome, right? And it needs to be balanced with this mindset that AI is not a panacea, right? You still have to be thoughtful about how you are going to take these solutions out to market. As we've seen with ChatGPT, it's not perfect. It sometimes spits out garbage. And that's okay. So there's always this notion of augmented intelligence, you know, not artificial, but augmented intelligence where you use the AI as a tool 
to do your job better or to do whatever it is you're trying to do better, right? Google Maps is a great example of that, right? I love Google Maps. I'm in awe of the system that they've built to give me directions to go from anywhere to anywhere. There's a lot of AI in there. And to your point about data, they are learning every single microsecond from the data that they collect of every trip that is navigated via Google Maps, right? So I'm very excited about the possibilities, but I'm also a pragmatist and cognizant of the challenges that come with widespread adoption of AI. And learning from large data sets is one of them. And like one of our companies, Sketch, where I'm involved in, is building a data control, data privacy compliance solution. How do you give users or owners of data the ability to control who can access data for what purpose? Sure. Right? These are the kinds of things that are going to become more mainstream as AI becomes more and more mainstream and part of our lives. I'm going to talk about the data set issue for a moment. I do really quickly just want to acknowledge about two minutes ago, you criticized some of the writing that ChatGPT put out. And I just want to say, looking straight in the camera, Mr. ChatGPT, when you do become self-aware, I just want to be clear and say, I didn't criticize anything that you did. I think you're great. That was my friend. So when you're singling us out, that was him, not me. I think you're amazing and everything you do is awesome. Okay. So I just felt for my own safety that I would just put that disclaimer well done, well done. I mean, I don't want to think I pandered to you, Mr. ChatGPT, should you review this video in the future. It's, which, which it will. It, it will. So on the nerd, all jokes aside, you've got these data sets that people are analyzing. And I think when you start looking at things like ChatGPT, so you're accumulating you know, millions and millions, depending trillions in the future, I've heard rumors of you know, data points that are out there. You could argue that everyone could start analyzing these same data points and start accumulating you know, comparable sets of data. What is the opportunity from a data expertise standpoint for like different companies to glean different opportunities from potentially what becomes a pretty singular homogenous data set in the future? It's a great question. And it's something that we think about a lot in our shop over here, Freddie. So you're right. You know, chat GPT or foundational models like GPT-3 are trained on just massive data sets. The average company, like, cannot even fathom how much compute resources it takes to train models like that, right? So we are going to continue to see more of that happening from these big companies. Meta, Google, OpenAI, with the investment that Microsoft is making in them, etc., so there will be these foundational models that are trained on wide publicly available mammoth data sets, right? And everybody will have access to those foundational models. The opportunity and the approach that people are going to take now is what some people are calling data-centric AI. How we internalize that is you start with a foundational model and then you fine-tune it using data that is proprietary to you. Right? And when you do that, you are able to customize the behavior of the foundational model beyond what is available to everybody else. So this fine-tuning really of the foundational model will become key. And therefore, you will need to focus more on making sure that the proprietary data that you have meets a certain standard. I want to make sure I'm processed super interesting. So if I was to compare this to a human, like you or I, so there's a certain 
things of general knowledge that I have that every other human theoretically has. That's not what differentiates me, but it's that combination of that when I take that with my personal experience or whatever that makes something I do potentially more or less valuable than someone else. So same logic with AI. That's, that's really exactly that's right. a really neat way of thinking about it. And I hadn't really thought about it like that. Yeah. So one of our companies, Markov ML, is actually focused on building those we call data intelligence solutions yeah. for data-centric AI right now. That's interesting. How do you think data companies, would they be licensing, I guess, data sets to different AI companies? Will it be like one company that starts to own all this knowledge and clean it and parse it and make it more easy to index, do you think? Or is everyone going to keep trying to index it themselves? Like, what does the future of that look like, in, in your opinion? That's a great question. And I think there are multiple kind of scenarios that might play out, right? Companies like Markov that are going to provide tools sure. to help you understand the quality of your data, build pipelines and workflows that will result in your data set being of the right quality that then is fed to fine-tuning these foundational models. Yeah. Over time, the sets of algorithms that will be developed to ascertain quality of a data set will be built by people all the, here, there, everywhere, and they might be made available on a platform like Markov yeah. using a marketplace-like concept where if you have a data set that you've obtained, it's a proprietary data set, and you want to fine-tune a foundational model using that, you might use a data quality module built by Sally that is available on a marketplace like Markov. Right now, I'm not saying this is happening today, but that's sure. where things are going, right? At least we see things going in that direction, especially as more and more people start to get familiar and become quasi-experts in data science, machine learning, AI, etc. The expression, you know, data is the new oil makes me cringe a little bit now. I think I used it on a slide in 2008 or something once, yep. but it, now it feels a bit burned out. When we were talking about it then, and when I say we, I mean myself and I was in, more in the advertising world than anything else back then. We were definitely talking about advertising and targeting and things like that. Yep. And you realize through a lens of where all this is going, and if we all argue that AI, and I don't think anyone would disagree with this, that AI could potentially create a massive technological revolution. I'm going to bring back that phrase, even though I hate it, but like you thought oil was valuable then, so to speak. Think about like what the value of these data sets are now, because it's not just so I can target you to buy Pampers, <laughs> whatever it is. I guess it's data that I didn't understand would have been valuable. Now, look, it was really valuable because it's human knowledge at a broad scale that could be used to scale. It's really interesting. Absolutely. Even as far back as 2000 or as early as 2008, depending on how you look at it, right? We didn't have the kind of infrastructure that we have today to be able to just store all the data that we can store today. And previously, that was the fundamental challenge. If you don't have the data, if the storage architectures and the infrastructure is not able to store all the data that you could possibly want to store, mm. then forget about processing it to generate insights or what have you, right? But now we are like storing every little scrap of data. Is this all these like NoSQL databases that have emerged over the last 10 years or so, that, that kind of thinking? They're part of the solution. What's primarily driving all this, right, is that the... Cloud platforms like Amazon and Google and Azure 
their storage solutions like S3 or Google Cloud Storage or Azure Block File System, these are, in the grand scheme of things, extremely cheap solutions to mm-hmm. store data. That's one of the reasons why you see companies like Snowflake doing really so it's well. cheap and you know? easy, basically, the perfect Correct. recipe for technology innovation. Correct. Yeah. Snowflake says, store every bit of data in my data platform. Yeah. And then when you credit it, that's when you pay me. But they're removing the barriers yeah. to storing as much data as you possibly can or want to. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so when you think about all the news and stuff, I'm sure where a lot of us are consuming, when you see people chatting about AI and, and giving your time in the space, is data-driven AI kind of being an interesting phrase I hadn't really thought about until you said it today. What's exciting you the most? Lots of things, actually. I said earlier, right? Like the application of modern data management and AI techniques to solve problems, perhaps not so sexy industries as supply chain, logistics, even climate change is super exciting. I think there'll be no dearth of companies who come and say, oh, here's another data-driven solution that we've built that is a twist on what the others were doing in advertising and marketing. That is going to continue to happen for many, 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 many years to come. Right. But I think the potential now is in looking at industries like healthcare, like logistics, like supply chain, climate change, et cetera, and see the applications of data and AI in those domains. Right. So that's very exciting for me. I think our ability to now capture and process and analyze all sorts of data is going to create, as I was saying earlier, is going to create this need for some sort of regulation on how data should be used, who has rights to use it, how do the owners give consent, and what are the early innings of that, right? GDPR came out in May 25th, 26th, May 25th, 2018. That's when it fact. So it's been like, whatever, five, it'll be five years soon. But we're still in the early innings of in the industry building general purpose frameworks that guide the collection, usage, processing, and analysis of an activation of data. So that's another thing that I'm excited about in terms of seeing the innovation happen along that dimension. Mm-hmm. And then in the inverse of this, what makes you the most nervous about the potential futures of AI? Actually, there's a very interesting show that is on Peacock. It's called Capture, and I highly recommend you see it. It's got two seasons. The first season is good. The second one is just mind-blowingly awesome. Okay, writing this down. Yeah, you sold me. Especially because of the discussion we've just had vis-a-vis chat GPT, et cetera. The risk is always there in the technology being misused. That's why creating the right kind of governance frameworks, et cetera, become more and more important. The challenge is how much government involvement do you want in this versus how much of it is driven by the industry? I think that's going to be the interesting struggle that we see in the next few years to come. But yeah, I mean, the risk of it being misused, and we're already seeing that. We're already seeing I mean, lots of examples. Someone's going to misuse it. We're humans. They were incapable of having nice things without botching it. And I think there'll be, how do we try and balance those things? Yeah, I think generally speaking, we've done a, as human beings or a society, civilization, what do you want to call it, right? We've done a pretty good job of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to things like these. But I'm also pragmatic enough and real enough to recognize that 
it depends on who you talk to. So some people may have a very negative view on all of these technologies because of their personal experiences as well. Yeah, and that's totally fair. While we're talking about things that scare you, I think this is probably the appropriate time to ask you for your O-Ship story. And again, if this is your first time logging into O-Ship, if you're listening to us on any of our audio podcasts or tuning into the web series, we always love to ask our guests who have these really had great success in their careers, but also have some, what's a moment where it's gone wrong for you, where something kind of went off the rails, as I'm prone to saying, you maybe had a moment to course correct, to get things back on track. And maybe that was a learning moment for you. Maybe it was an inspirational moment, or maybe it's just a funny moment. It wasn't funny at the time, but probably funny now. But I'd love to hear about a, a, an O-ship moment. And I lied, by the way, I will put you in on the box on this one. You've got to give me one O-ship story. The floor is yours, sir. <laughs> I will just give you one. One look at our plenty I could share. I bet there but is. This one, <laughs> this one actually checks a lot of the boxes that you mentioned. Right? So this was in the relatively early days at Crux. And we had one of our largest customers. And the way the Crux technology worked is we had this piece of JavaScript code that give to our customers and they deployed it on their websites, right? And we would do all sorts of things on their website through our JavaScript technology. Now you might imagine, because it's running on their websites, if there were issues in our code, that could affect their revenue because with the ads that were being shown on their website and things like that. So there was this one moment, and we were typically startup moving fast and trying not to break things. And there was this one moment where somebody inadvertently ended up pushing a change to our, we used to call it the control tag, the crux control tag. And it went live on this largest customer of ours. It wasn't supposed to. And it caused havoc for a subset of their traffic. Yeah. And, you know, anybody who's built internet technology has dealt with the evil that is, or that was IE6, yeah. Internet Explorer yeah. 6. So for IE6 in the certain circumstances, the ads were just not shown and revenue lost revenue. This was like in 2011 uh, yeah. or 12. And I was in a board meeting actually at that time when all of this was happening. So for three hours, I was unaware of this crisis that was unfolding. I come out of the board meeting and I open up my email and oh my God, there are just messages galore. And so the first thing I do is I call Steven on the phone and say, hey man, just saw the messages. I'm getting on a plane in the afternoon. Let's meet tomorrow morning and we'll talk through all of this. And then we got three people together and we literally built our first version of an automated testing framework, which ensured that this thing never happened. Never happened again. So I got on the red eye at whatever, 9 p.m. or so from San Francisco, flew to New York. The team had started building all this new stuff and around three o'clock in the afternoon. By the time I met the client at 11 a.m. the next morning, we had the system ready to go so I could demo. Hardcore. What doing <laughs> going forward so that this never happened again. Wow. Steven is a good friend and they were a great client, but it's just one of those stories where we learned the value of making sure that when you think you've tested enough, test one more time. And the importance of putting these systems in place that allow you to prevent these kinds of mishaps from happening. Since then, 
different mishaps have happened, not these kinds of ones, but you know, that's what software is all about. These oh shit moments. Yeah. I think the even more compelling lesson that I think I learned from that was the value of taking immediate action and also being accountable for your mistakes. So I think when something goes wrong, whether you're in a service provider and doing something for someone else or any relationship you're in, for me anyway, if someone says, I screwed up, I'm fixing it, and here's my plan to fix it, and I know the fix is there, I don't hold grudges for that. I think it's the people yeah. that don't do that, that I'm like, so you got no plan, you completely shit the bed, and you're screwing my business up. And those are the people I'm like, I can't keep working work. with these folks. Yeah, it takes a long time to earn trust. Yeah. But it erodes very, very quickly. Very fast. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a wonderful place to jump off for today. I could have kept talking to you about the subject for another hour easy. I want to make sure people have a chance to find you. What's the best place if people want to find you online, they want to research more about your company or you, what do you recommend that people do? LinkedIn is the best. My personal LinkedIn is the best. Or you could go to the Superset website, superset.com, to learn more about what we're doing at Superset, our company building philosophy, and all of that as well. Okay, that's perfect. I've spent some time on there. Uh, very interesting company. I was honored to have you on as a guest today at Vivek. So it's just super interesting. I hope we get to spend more time together in the future. You're a really interesting guy. I want to thank you. And I'd also like to thank our audience. So all of you, that you, whether you're, again, tuning in, online, on video, or you're listening in on any of our podcasts. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening and subscribing and following us. If you want to find out more about OShipShare, go to OShipShare.com. We've got links to every single platform that we stream on in case you're looking for a different experience. And the best thing you could do to support this show is give us a like, share it on your feed, comment, ask a question. A lot of time our guests will monitor the posts and chime in. We're just thankful that you're out there supporting us and we want to keep bringing great content to you and that little bit of support makes it all worthwhile. So thank you to that. And again, thanks for being such an awesome guest. I really, really, really enjoyed the conversation. This was a lot of fun, Freddy. It was a hoot. Thank you for having me on the show. And yeah, if anybody wants to reach out, feel free. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next week on O-Ship. Oh,